we have the shooter. He was given a gun by the parents. The parents know that the kid is disturbed and for giving him a gun, I would believe is enough but I need to see the record. You're listening to Pod Suey. Stop the threat. That's our number one mission. The person's giving up to us or committing suicide or shooting at us, one thing they're not doing is looking for more victims. Oxford, one year later. The grief is very different. It's, she says it's, the time hasn't helped. It's worse. Uh, it's starting to settle in now that this is permanent and she will never see her son Justin again. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. November 30th marked one year since the Oxford High School shooting where alleged gunman Ethan Crumley, a 15-year-old student at the school, killed four classmates, injuring a number of others. Oakland County Sheriff's deputies were on the scene within minutes to neutralize the threat and save countless lives. Sheriff Bouchard remembers the events of that terrible day one year later on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. This is a day people are thinking of Madison Baldwin, Tate Meyer, Hannah St. Juliana, Justin Schilling, and the other people who were injured, including a teacher on that day, and all of the students and the entire community as a whole. It's a very difficult day, uh, this being one year since the shooting. And joining us now is Sheriff Michael Bouchard, Oakland County Sheriff. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Well, you know, obviously it's a it's a sad day and a day of remembrance, but uh, we're pushing through it and doing everything we can to help people. Uh, across the community and within our agency, as you said. Can you take us back to that day when the first call for help went out? Because we've seen uh, school shootings around the country, and this was one where many things from a law enforcement standpoint went went right. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to back up a little further, uh, going back to after Mumbai, if you remember, quite uh, a few years, a decade or more ago. Um, after that shooting that I got a deep brief on, I called all the chiefs in Oakland County and they came to my office and, and I said, we needed to work more closely together, train together and be prepared for the unimaginable. You know, we hope and pray it never happens, but that's not a strategy preparation is. So we started training together on the same protocols, which are to get there as fast as you can, to not hesitate, to not stage, to not delay, but immediately go in and go find the uh, threat, to stop the threat. That's our number one mission. Um, And so that's exactly what happened on that day. Everybody came from every direction. They raced there as quickly as they could. As soon as they got there, they suited up and they went in the building and and looked for what we call stimulus, noise or gunshots or things, and, and try to immediately stop the threat. Because if the person's giving up to us or committing suicide or shooting at us, one thing they're not doing is looking for more victims. So you guys did the training that you needed to do. The schools also have this ALICE alert, lockdown, inform, counter, and evacuate. Um, That went into effect, and and that must have helped as well. It helped greatly. You know, we had trained with Oxford on a lot of things. You know, there's ALICE, there's run, hide, fight. There's different iterations, but basically, excuse me, they're all the same on those kinds of principles. And they had devices that had been purchased Um, that went in every door to secure the classroom door so no one could get in or out. So um, all of the terrible activity was contained to the hallway. So you guys did a phenomenal job, your your team and the other chiefs in their departments as well around Oakland County who responded that day. But much was made this very week on, on the protocols that were discovered that were in place within the district at Oxford High School. 
but were never followed. And, and I know you worked very hard to learn the best practices on school safety, gun safety, security, you know, to protect these kids and these teachers. But when the district, those practices, you know, once instituted, if they're not being followed and put into practice, I mean, literally practiced, training has got to be a central part of this, right? So what lessons are learned from what we learned this week about what was not followed? Yeah, absolutely. Training and practice is essential. You know, we had been offering and <clears throat> encouraging agencies and, and school districts and school buildings all across the county for years to do that training. Some had pushed back. They didn't like the look or feel of it, but they, you know, that's sadly the world in which we live in. You can't ignore a threat and, and pretend it won't happen because sadly now we found out it can even happen here to one of the most quiet, loving communities you know, in the country. And so um, I think after that has now happened, you're seeing more school districts um, and buildings that are doing that training, that are asking for that training, that are seeking ways to, to get better, to get more secure, to get more capable um, to respond to these things. You know, part of your job, Sheriff, is it's not always just the security aspect of this, but you are a leader in this this very community in which this massacre occurred. So you have to tend in a very sensitive way to, I'm sure, the emotional needs of, of these victims and these families, but also the emotional and, and mental needs of your own staff and your own deputies. Um, yeah. What is that like? Yeah, without question. You know, that day we obviously lost four amazing souls that had their unlimited potential uh, cut short. We had countless others wounded, but we have so many others that have mental and emotional wounds that, you know, it, you're right. I At the beginning, you talked about process. People say healing. Some of these things I don't think will ever fully heal, quote unquote. I think you learn to process it and you learn to move forward step by step, day by day. And so we've been trying to help the community do that, to work through this process, to get some sense of safety again, to get some sense of normalcy again. And the same with our staff. Uh, they're struggling with it as well because one of the things that I ask them to do is go past people that are scared or even hurt because you have to find the threat first and foremost. That has to be our priority. But to do that, you may have to go past people that are hurting. And that's really counterintuitive to anything that um, we live for because we live to help people that's why most people go into anything putting on a uniform police fire or military they want to make a difference and to go past somebody that's hurting is really a difficult thing to do and people struggle with it afterwards but it's the right thing to do because every second you stop to pause to calm someone or help someone someone else could be getting shot and this individual still had 18 live rounds of ammunition when he was taken into custody Sheriff Bouchard also appeared on the Paul W. Smith Show with Chris Renwick and Sean Belegian this week to address the dramatic increase of threats made against schools since the shooting. Uh, Sheriff, before we let you go, I, I wanted to, to at least ask you, I know that, that you and the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office continue this campaign to tell kids in schools, look, if you're making threats, you'll find them. You're going to prosecute them. This is against the law. It's not funny. You're not getting out of a test. It's serious. And certainly Oxford is is example number one in Oakland County. Uh, but but uh, we had a couple of whistleblowers come forward yesterday saying the school didn't follow procedures uh, up and down the list. Um, just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on on the news that was made yesterday. Well, the two uh, the, the the most important thing that we can do is communicate and share information, and that goes then to 
you know, threat assessment and determination of what's the next step for it. So we have a, a very kind of simple but a very basic process at the sheriff's office. That if we're looped into any alleged disturbing behavior or threat, we immediately go and render that situation safe. So make sure that that there's no immediate danger. That if, if for example, the student make sure there's no weapons or immediate threat, and then we do an immediate follow-on where we go uh, to the student's home and make a determination of availability and accessibility to weapons. And then the process can take, you know, a little more time because you've made the situation safe and determined what the possibility and probabilities are. And then you can begin to loop in other kinds of things like home assessments or mental health evaluations, things like that. So if you don't share information, then you'll never get that intervention moment if you don't loop everybody in. And, and we've seen it work and not work. So, for example, we had a situation where a six-year-old told his parents at home um, that another six-year-old said they were going to bring a gun to school. And instead of dismissing it, they're saying, oh, honey, I'm sure that child didn't mean it, or, you know, it was a really bad, bad attempt at a joke. They looped us in. We looped in the schools. He didn't know the person's name. And so we were at the school the next day, and we found a six-year-old with a loaded gun going trying to oh go to school. Oh, my God. Mm. So, you know, that information allows us when we share it, when we all talk, whether it's because more than likely either another student or a teacher or somebody in that school, if we're again talking about school threats, is the most likely person to see or hear something mm -hmm. that's concerning or threatening. We're not that person. So we need to hear it and share it and then take action. Make the assessment. And that's the best way to get in front of it is through that assessment of what the threat is. And as you said, even if they don't intend to carry out a threat, it's still a crime and it still makes people very fearful, terrorized, and we're going to hold you to account and present every one of those cases to the prosecutor for charges. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald tells Guy Gordon what happens when these threats, false or otherwise, make their way to her office. We never ignore any threat. Uh, we take every single one seriously and we look at all the facts surrounding each of those individuals and what they said and where they said it and where did they come from and what is their family situation like and how old are they. Um, and and yes, we, we end up charging them with some misdemeanors and, and some felonies. And that is, we've definitely seen an increase. In terms of, let's just deal with these threats, these these cruel, again, I don't want to use the word prank because it's more serious than that, but these 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 threats and these attacks that are placed on, on schools uh, that, 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 that never come to be. You reached out to police chiefs, sheriffs, school superintendents about how to stem this tide on these things. What kind of ideas emerged from those discussions? Well, we were seeing such a, an increase and, you know, school districts want answers, parents want answers and they want solutions. And so we immediately convened all the county superintendents to talk through what our process was, what, what we look at, what we consider to be very concerning, but most importantly, to talk about threat assessments, good uh, research-based threat assessments that the school district could do before they ever even call law enforcement in. And then we also convened law enforcement and the sheriff, and we 
I'm, I'm really proud to say are all on the same page. We all take that seriously, but we have to inform. We have to inform law enforcement. We have to inform uh, school districts and parents and teachers. We can't just say we, you know, we're, we're going to um, charge everybody criminally. We do have to be able to look at how do we assess whether this is a kid who's just trying to get their school called off for a day, mm -hmm. which, by the way, there are strict, severe consequences for that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we don't hold those individuals accountable versus a kid who is really in crisis and very likely will commit a mass shooting. And, and the good news is, Guy, that, is that we know we have answers to that. And that's why I convened this commission, because we do have data and, and research and people who are studying this on the threat assessment side, the law enforcement side, um, the, 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 the whole mental health side about how do we identify a person who's in crisis and what do we do when we identify that person. Right. You know, the majority of mass shootings take place in workplaces, not schools. We have a problem with gun violence, and it's not just about guns. That's one very important aspect, access to guns, but it's not just about guns. It's, it, there are a lot of things that we have to take a look at and roll up our sleeves and, and inform the public. Tate Mir, 16. Hannah St. Juliana, 14. Madison Baldwin, 17. Justin Schilling, 17. Four teenagers who lost their lives at Oxford High School on November 30th, 2021. Jennifer Chambers, educational reporter for the Detroit News, did more than 20 interviews over the past eight weeks to remember the four young lives cut short that day and tells the stories of some of the survivors. Jennifer Chambers was on Guy Gordon. Well, you know, every family had a different story for me when we sat down uh, in the last eight weeks to talk about what their life has been like without their child. And uh, some families uh, went back to the beginning. Uh, Justin Schilling's mother, Jill, talked to me about what those initial days were like, what a blur it was, and how she was on autopilot um, trying to, you know, take care of her other children and get mm -hmm. to funerals and that, um, trying to understand what happened. And then here we are a year later, and she says the grief is very different. It's, she says it's the time hasn't helped. It's worse. Um, it's starting to settle in now that this is permanent and she will never see her son, Justin, again. Um, but she was brave enough to tell me about a moment at which she was able to visit the bathroom at Oxford High where Justin was shot and that she went in there with another mother of a, a victim of the attack, uh, Keegan Gregory, who survived, who was with Justin at that time. And through our interview, we got to understand that Jill went into that bathroom to visit where her son came face to face with a killer and she prayed and she brought Megan with her. And, um, you know, the families have such grace and um, these are really emotional interviews, but the, the families have been very generous with their time and very candid about the impact on their lives. Well, um, and Jill and Megan have developed this unique friendship and mm -hmm. uh, they've formed almost their own little support group through this. I mean, Keegan very likely is alive because Justin put himself in front of the gunman first. Yes, that is what it sounds like. Based on what Keegan told his parents happened, um, the families have pieced together an understanding that Justin became Keegan's guardian angel that day. He's older. He's a senior. 
Keegan was a freshman and obviously neither boy was prepared for something like this, but Justin went into the mode that his family describes him as selfless and caring for others and always doing the right thing um, and being empathetic. So he, he immediately looked out for Keegan and told him to hide, told him to pull his feet off the ground and that if they could run, they would. And I think that helped keep Keegan calm while he was texting with his own parents about what was unfolding. Um, and unfortunately, um, Justin did not emerge from that bathroom alive and uh, Keegan did. So that is a story that the families share, they're bonded over. And, and Keegan's parents told me that Keegan realizes that he does have a purpose and he perhaps was saved for a reason. And they're happy that perhaps he can think about that as he moves forward in his life after experiencing such a tragedy and such a trauma. And, and am I right to understand that that it was Justin's mom who called Keegan's mother to say, you need to get him into therapy right away? And did she not make the original appointment? This was... Uh... He, this was uh, Justin's stepmother, Craig okay. Schilling is his father. And uh, what happened is that as soon as Ke- uh, Megan and Chad Gregory learned that it was Justin who was in the bathroom with their son, they still didn't really know what it exactly had happened, but they knew the boys were together at that moment. And they said to the Schilling family, to Craig and to Linda, uh, our boy was with your boy, and at some point in the future, we need to talk. And Linda, the stepmother, called Megan back and said, oh, you need to get Keegan into therapy immediately after what he just went through. And sure. you have a therapist. And Megan said no, and Linda got him one within 24 hours. And just... the families have bonded together in that way as well, as trying to care for each other, care for each other's children. It's just those little moments of grace that we have mm-hmm. seen here. It's just mm-hmm. so it's so extraordinary. I've got to imagine, though, are, are they as filled with frustration as we've heard from other parents that they still can't get an actual accounting of what happened to their children that day? And in, I think in, in Keegan's case, they can't even be told who the officer was that interrogated him for two hours. I think every family that has gone through this experience is frustrated. Um, they they express it differently. Um, H- Hannah St. Juliana's family has dedicated themselves to putting together a memorial garden in her name and her spirit and including all the teens. And they're doing this out of frustration because the school has not come up with a plan to erect a permanent memorial. Um, and, and they're frustrated at at that process. They're frustrated that they still don't know exactly what has happened in the school. And yes, the other families are frustrated that they don't have specifics on what happened that day. Um, Jill, Justin's mother said, you know, just tell me I'm broken. And I, there is nothing, you know, there's, this is what I need now to start moving on and I still don't have it. It was heartbreaking to hear from her that she's literally begging for information on what really happened that day. And we all know that the the shooter is the one that fired the rounds, but I think the questions are definitely out there about what the school did and didn't do when it had information about that student um, and this idea that they could have done something more. You talked to Keegan's father, and again, Keegan Gregory is the young man that escaped the bathroom as uh, Mm -hmm. Justin Schilling was basically executed by the gunman. 
But you were able, Chad Gregory shared the text that he was exchanging with his son in real time as the gunman was entering that Mm -hmm. bathroom. I can't imagine how powerless he must have felt that he's miles away in downtown Detroit watching this happen on his phone and he can't do anything to defend his child. He described very intense feelings uh, when he started seeing his son's text. And yes, he was over an hour away and his son was literally telling him that there was a gunman and he was hiding in a bathroom. And Chad said he initially wanted to say, just run, just get out of there, just, you know, do whatever you have to do. And then he said it occurred to him that the best thing he could do for his son was to keep him calm. So when he got a real opportunity to save himself, he could take it. And Chad has thought a lot about that day and what advice he gave his son. And Megan believes that it saved their son's life, that she would have probably been a lot more upset and emotional if she had reacted to those texts, which she missed because she was with another child getting a vaccination. Um, But Chad did say that, you know, his blood pressure was up, his heart rate was up, and he was simply reading the text. He wasn't his child in the bathroom with a gunman, so he can't even imagine what his son was going through. But Chad has said he still can't look back at those texts to this day. He's still not ready to see them. And yes, the family and their lawyer shared those texts with us. And we put those in our story in a way if uh, people see the digital presentation in which you can see the texts come up one at a time. Um, And it's something I've never seen us do in storytelling before, but it really literally is very powerful to see this conversation like it's happening in real time. It puts you in the moment and, you know, it was hard not to shed, shed some tears while you're reading it because this poor young man who did survive, Keegan Gregory, is still struggling to this day with being able to stay at school. And I know they changed their spring break yeah. um, vacation <laughs> plans because he can't get on an airplane. And, and, and all the siblings, as you document in your story, are having their own issues. This affected every member of this community. Right, and so many students at Oxford High who may have just been around the corner, down the hall, who, who you know, didn't necessarily hear anything or maybe see anything, still everyone who was in that building that day was still impacted by this trauma, this violent event. And uh, Megan spoke in, in our interview about hoping that everyone realizes that they need some kind of help, and if they, they need it, they should seek it. Just because you weren't shot or wounded doesn't mean that you're not worthy of getting some support and help. And I I just would think everybody would ask. I would hope that the children who need help can ask for it. I hope that people listening and reading our story will get their children help. I hope the kids um, can help each other. Uh, Tate Mears family started a peer-to-peer mentoring program in the last year as they cope with the death of their son. And that idea is to connect high school age kids with middle kids so kids aren't disconnected and I think the hope is that this community does need healing and that sometimes kids can help each other versus adults helping kids and um, they have uh, 250 kids in this program um, just that they started just a few months ago and it's in Tate's honor it's in Tate's memory they talk about Tate traits Uh, he was this Mm. wonderfully kind kid who really uh, understood the importance of friendship and mentoring, and that's how that family um, is also moving forward. Let's hope that they all in their own way 
find some kind of peace. The Michigan Supreme Court put a pause on the trial of James and Jennifer Crumley, parents of Ethan who are facing multiple manslaughter charges connected with the shooting. Sending it back to the Michigan Court of Appeals to examine if the Oakland County prosecutor has enough evidence to bound them over for trial. Attorney Todd Flood breaks it all down on all talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. The preliminary exam took place in district court. Two things have to be shown at a preliminary exam. Probable cause that a crime was committed and probable cause the defendant committed the crime. Charged with manslaughter, they have to show the elements, each element by that probable cause standard. And one of the big elements issues in that case is causation. So first you get the but-for test. That's really easy to get by that. But-for X would would would, uh, the shooter have been uh, able to kill everybody, Um, you know, providing the gun, uh, making sure the kid had access to the gun. Then you got to show the second prong of causation. That is was it a proximate cause? And the big question there, A, was it a proximate cause? Them providing the gun. Normally in the world of universe we live in, you cannot charge, I can't charge either you, Tom, or Kevin for the criminal acts of a third party. I can't charge you for the acts of your son or your daughter. Uh, unless, unless there is something where we show that you enabled, you aided, or you provided um, the the means to commit that crime. Uh, So it goes up to the circuit court. The district court bound over the case to say, yep, the prosecutor met their standard. They met the probable cause standard to show that the elements of the crime were there by that standard. The circuit court judge heard what is called a motion to quash. That is, the defense attorneys brought up and said, hey, listen, guys, The district court over here abused her discretion. She should not have bound that case over because legally, legally, there wasn't enough evidence on the record on this base uh, uh, of the four corners of the transcript. There wasn't enough evidence on that record to show causation. Circuit court judge denied defendant's motion. Defendants, they're going at it. They say, let's go to the court of appeals. They seek leave. Court of appeals uh denies hearing the case then they appeal all the way up for the supreme court lo and behold what did the supreme court do under a precedence in this case we have people v yost they said you know what court of appeals we want you to look at this case um and we're remanding it back to the court of appeals to look at one issue one specific issue you all look at whether or not the elements necessary for causation were there. Now, I believe, uh, yeah, I haven't read the transcript of the district court uh, uh, circumstances. I I will look at that and I will check out to see whether or not they met the elements necessary. But there are cases, there's a precedent in our state uh, with the mother that was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for not hiding matches uh, properly, knowing that her, her child was setting everything on fire. She was warned by CPS. She was warned by neighbors. The kid was lighting fires all over the place. Mom takes a nap on the couch. Child then gets up on top of the refrigerator, grabs the uh, matches, and lights a curtain on fire in the apartment. The apartment goes up and kills a child in the apartment below mom charged and convicted and lost on appeal 
of involuntary manslaughter. So here, what do we have? We have the shooter. He was given a gun by the parents. The parents know that the kid is disturbed. The, kid, the parents probably, I got to believe, the evidence of the, the uh, knowledge that this, this uh, shooter was mentally unstable was entered into evidence and that the parents had notice and knowledge of that. And for giving him a gun, I would believe is enough but I need to see the record. I need to see the transcript to see whether or not the prosecution in this case made sure that they established those elements necessary for involuntary manslaughter. So bottom line, line, there's a chance they could dismiss the case entirely against the crumbly parents. There you go. There's Mm. a chance. If they didn't put it in, Kevin, this case could go away. On Monday, former Oxford School Board President Tom Donnelly and former school board treasurer Corey Bailey held a press conference accusing the school district of not following safety protocols and keeping information from both the board and the public. The school had not put this playbook to practice at any of our buildings. We had been informed that those responsible for safety have raised concerns over the lack of training for quite some time. But those concerns were ignored. That was Corey Bailey at the press conference. He went on Guy Gordon with his attorney, Bill Cycling. Really, there's two bombshells here. One, that there was a threat assessment plan that was never fully implemented. And two, that when you gained that knowledge, outsiders told you to keep it quiet. Uh, Corey, is that the essence of what you're saying here? And what kind of a threat assessment plan was this? Where did it fall down? The threat assessment is actually based on a Secret Service model that our Policy 8400 and many other schools uh, model theirs after. And, uh, yes, that's, uh, that's exactly what I'm saying is that the, the system broke down. Uh, we had the policy in place, but a policy is not any good if, it's never acted upon. It's never implemented or trained upon. So why are you so confident that if this protocol had been fully engaged and they had done, I, th- I think it's called a marker process where they looked for kids that might have been having troubles. Why are you so confident that if this had been followed, that November 30th attack could have been prevented? Because if you've read through the Secret Service document, it outlines that this is a team event, that it's not just one person reviewing things, looking at things on their own, going down their own path, making their own decision. But it's a team event that that talk to other people involved. They look at past history with the student. It's a a system, and it's a very detailed system. So without having all of the markers in place, uh, the, the, the system fell apart. What would have happened had this plan been fully engaged? And they discovered what they discovered on November 29th, searching for ammo, disturbing drawings, um, certainly signs of a troubled and depressed young man. If the plan had been fully engaged, what should have and what would have happened based on the plan? It would have been, again, a team event um, from the minute that the teacher sent the concerning note to uh, the counselors, the team should have come in. The principal should have been involved. They should have involved the SRO. The, it should have been a team event. And in the manual, there are several scenarios 
that talk about when to ask about searching backpacks, when to ask about uh, do they have access to a weapon at home, is it locked up, mm-hmm. questions that they would have asked the parents. There, there's so many things that just fell between the cracks. And it's all there in the plan, right? It's all there in the plan. So, Bill... That, that Secret Service document is very detailed. Yeah. And and were you aware of this a year ago or 10 months ago? Were you aware that this plan was there, that it was in place, and, and what its status was? I was on the policy committee, and yes, we, we reviewed and updated um, policies, wordings that changed, uh, various things. So, yes, I, I was aware the policy was there. I was aware... That there was a, a higher document that ours was modeled after. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until afterwards that I really started digging into the wording uh, and started asking questions. And when you asked those questions, I mean, you said that when you discovered this document, it changed everything. If you were already aware of it beforehand, how did it change things? Um, again, I knew policy was there. I had reviewed it briefly mm-hmm. um, because that's not a school board uh, activity we we're not there to implement the policy we create the policy yeah. and then uh, others implement it um, but when I started digging into it and started learning about the team started learning all of the steps that go through it, it I, I knew there was no way a shooting could have happened if we would have followed those processes. A group of parents representing 19 Oxford High School students filed a class action lawsuit against the school district claiming that every student's constitutional right to safety and education was violated and is calling for policy changes at all schools in the district to increase student safety. Scott Weidenfeller is representing the students who filed the lawsuit, which is seeking no monetary damages and now includes all 5,700 students in the school district. He talked to Chris Renwick and Sean Belegian on the Paul W. Smith Show. So what we've done here is we we represented the 19 families and we had um, all of these other families approaching saying, hey, we want to be part of this too to uh, get the school to enforce these policies they have in place and to update them. And so what happened is we collectively decided, hey, let's file a motion. And so that's where we are right now in the federal court. We've just filed a motion um, asking a federal judge to certify a class. And yes, that class would include, as you state correctly, 5,700 students uh, in the Oxford School District. Um, So we filed that motion this week, uh, Monday, and now we um, have a period of time uh, where we have to go through, you know, any objections and the federal uh, court will have to weigh in and say, yes, we are certifying this class or no, we are not. So that's where we are in the in the proceedings. You know, Scott, this is this is obviously such a horrible situation that, that touches so many people. You know, our community came together as one and uh, we're left to say what can be done and i i think if you look at some of the details about this this is a cautionary tale of 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 what we need to do to help ensure that this never happens again yeah you know when we when we started this out we had a whole bunch of families come to us and uh and of course they- oh did we lose scott we lost him. all right we'll try to get all right scott we'll get him back, back. um you, you know one of the the things that i'm also interested in in asking Scott about when we get him back is how much of a, a a role did it, did it play when Tom Donnelly, the former Oxford 
school board president and, and treasurer Corey Bailey came out, turned whistleblower, and said, look, we, we didn't follow. We didn't follow the, the, the district's protocol. And not only did we not follow the district's protocol as, as we should have, but we basically did it just to get credit. You know, it's like doing the ACT. You're getting points just by putting your name on it. Doesn't mean you're doing well on the test. And, and you know, Chris, that's what I, I was getting at with Scott. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have the answers. I don't think anybody has the answers to help ensure that this never happens again. What we can do is look at the mistakes that were made. And unfortunately, this situation is is something that we can look at this and say, OK, this is how not to do it. Well, the Detroit News uh, says that the civil litigation, um, the district has contended it is it has government immunity against claims of negligence and other charges. And I think that's another part of this uh, that we really haven't touched on. And look, th- th- this is getting into the minutia. But when you've got Tom Donnelly and Corey Bailey coming out and saying, look, things weren't done properly, but the school district continues to hide behind government immunity. That's a problem. And and the fact that they continue to to claim that as kind of their parachute makes it really difficult, again, to try to get to the bottom of this. Um, Scott's back with us. Uh, Scott Weidenfeller with Graywall. He's the, the attorney representing here. Scott, uh, we were just kind of rapping here while we were getting you back on about Tom Donnelly and Corey Bailey, the former president and treasurer of the board. And, and, and what impact it had on your suit after they came out and blew the whistle, said school didn't do what they need to do in, in terms of risk assessment and protocol. You know, it's it's uh, interesting. It's uh, some of these things, um, you know, our families have been hearing about. Um, I, I do, Chris, have to be careful about commenting on ongoing discovery in federal court. Um, certainly, along with everyone else, we heard what they said um, coming out saying that there were threat assessment policies that just were never implemented. Um so, so we'll be interested to see uh, as discovery progresses where all of this leads. Certainly, we want to take the depositions under oath of uh, Mr. Donnelly and Mr. Well, Bailey. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this way then. Do you feel that your, your case is bolstered by some of the allegations that were made? You know, I think um, with any uh, litigation process, we, we really would like to you know, get all the information first and take their depositions, get their testimony under oath. Um, there are additional people we want to depose as well and then um, look at it holistically. Um, certainly, it, it did come out as a bombshell, of course, even to some of our clients, um, you know, finally to hear some some information from the board. So we'll, we'll have to do more discovery and to find out exactly, you know, hey, um, how accurate is this and, and where does all of this, you know, fit together? I got 10 seconds. I, I got 10 seconds left here, Scott. I just wanted to clarify. The parents are not asking for money, right? There's no monetary gain here for them. They just want the district to update their protocol so the kids are safe. Exactly. Uh, no monetary claim for any class member and anyone could opt out of the class if it is certified by the federal court. That's right. That'll do it for this episode of Pod Suey. See you next time.